Welcome to Tequila Talks, the podcast that provides a comprehensive understanding of the world of finance and technology today. This show is brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. I'm Alex Johnson, and I'll be hosting the first episodes, where I'll be talking to industry leaders and delving into the business models of some of the most successful fintechs operating right now across the Americas. And I'm Nicole Kasperson, and I'll hear the human stories and insights behind the headlines that most people miss. Let's do this. Cycles always end savagely. You know, it's really as a result of that, that I don't invest in balance sheet companies. You know, that would include full stack insurance carriers and lending companies of all types and prop tech companies that have balance sheets. And I, you know, sometimes companies that I invest in will stray into those areas, but I've just now lived through it enough times to know that when the, when the wheel stops turning as it inevitably does, those companies, they aren't just impaired. It isn't just a headwind. It's just a brutal and vicious universe extinction event. My guest today is Matt Harris, partner at Bain Capital Ventures and uh, a highly respected voice in fintech and uh, someone I'm a huge fan of. Matt, thanks so much for joining the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for saying that. I'm a big fan of yours as well. Oh, awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I think this is actually the first time we've ever uh, chatted one-on-one, so um, really great to do it on a podcast. This will be so fun. <laughs> to start with, I was going back and reading some of your um, old writing. Uh, for those who maybe haven't uh, read a lot of the stuff that Matt has written, you need to rectify that immediately. There's some really great stuff, including a two-part article that you wrote in 2019, which is going to be sort of the jumping-off point for this whole conversation, on embedded finance. And one of the things that I guess I had glossed over or hadn't really paid attention to the first time I read it was a line in there where you said that you had decided 20 years ago to focus your venture investing career on the uh, intersection of financial services and technology. That was a great decision. And I was curious, maybe, uh, you know, obviously that was way before fintech was a thing. And I I probably wasn't as quite an obvious a decision then as it would be now. Can you maybe take us back real quick and just walk us through how you got started in fintech and like why why this area was so fascinating to you? So I started investing in 1995. I joined Bain Capital from Bain and Company. And one of the really the first significant transaction that I worked on was a fintech investment. We bought what was then called TRW Credit. This takes most people back to before they were in commerce, but this auto parts conglomerate TRW had bought a credit bureau along the way and logically decided then to sell it. We bought it from them and we turned it into Experian. (laughs) Um, And so I spent a year in Orange County trying to rationalize that, that business. And I just fell in love with it. I just saw the impact of tech and data on financial institutions as being so transformative. And so subsequently I left to start my own venture capital firm and I did so really at the height of the dot-com bubble. So I didn't think I needed much of a strategy if I'm honest, but then when that all unwound, I realized I did need a strategy if I was gonna be in this industry for my career, which is, I had strong conviction about. and. So kind of casting about for a differentiated approach, I came back to fintech or or financial services 
and realized that nobody was really focused on it. It was quite contrarian and I liked that part of it. And it also lends itself to deep study and exploration. You know, financial services encompasses banking, payments, lending, insurance, asset management, wealth management, capital markets, you know, I could go on. So it felt like the sort of thing you could build a career around and not, not ever get bored. So that was my logic in the late nineties, early two thousands. And honestly, it, it felt uncomfortably contrarian for a long time, maybe even close to 10 years because nobody was doing it when I started and no one People continued (laughs) uninteresting for many, many years after that, which was hard. You know, honestly, it felt maybe just wrong, not contrarian, but uh, not just contrarian, but actually incorrect. And um, it was disorienting, but very heartening when in 08, 09, people started to really pay attention to uh, to FinTech. Well, I would imagine it was uh, disorienting times about 100 when we went through our, our latest mania period with fintech uh, over the last uh, three to five years. And I, I wanted to ask you, I mean, going all the way back to before the dot-com boom, I mean, fintech over that time, obviously financial services has changed a tremendous amount during that time. But one of the the questions I'm always fascinated by, especially over these long time horizons, is... Um, a question that uh, I think Jeff Bezos maybe framed at some point in the past where he was talking about, you know, the usefulness of looking at things that don't change as opposed to things that do change. And I was curious for your perspective over the last 30-ish years uh, of you sort of observing and working in financial services, including, as you say, some significant windows where there wasn't a lot of interest in uh, fintech and financial technology. What's one thing you've noticed that hasn't really changed during that time? Well, I can think of two things. One is that cycles always end savagely. You know, it's really as a result of that, that I don't invest in balance sheet companies. You know, that would include full stack insurance carriers and lending companies of all types and prop tech companies that have balance sheets. And I, you know, sometimes companies that I invest in will stray into those areas, but I've just now lived through it enough times to know that when the when the wheel stops turning as it inevitably does those companies they aren't just impaired it isn't just a headwind it's just a brutal and vicious universe extinction event right Um, right you know i will say it's psychologically very challenging when a cycle goes on as long as the kind of 2010 to 2021 cycle that's 11 years. That's a full lifetime of many uh, investors, you know? Yeah, right, right. In the industry during that period. And so there were many times when I just felt old and out of touch and, you know, just maybe buy now, pay later is different. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, everything in my soul and brain is telling me it's not different and it's going to end tragically. But, you know, there's a phenomena where if you enter and exit at the right time, you can make money even the things that don't make sense. And I, I've personal friends who made a billion dollars and buy now, pay later. You know, it can happen. It happened. But in my, at least my style, which again may not be the best style, I just need to feel confident that it isn't about the greater fool. It has to be, you know, at least trying to build a durable 
company that makes sense through cycles. So I think that's point one. And then the second point is that the regulators always win. Yeah. They just, you cannot fight the referees. And again, you know, there are many, many deals that I've passed on over time that other people did and made money, at least for some period of time, where it just felt like the regulatory risk was asymmetrically bad to me and I wasn't willing to take it and other people were. And I think probably an aggregate that's been helpful to my returns but there have been times where it felt like I was too risk averse about regulators, particularly because during the Trump administration, they all just like took that off. Like there was just no regulation. <laughs> um, you know, it really felt like maybe that's it. Maybe we're just not regulating financial services anymore, you know? And, right. and it took a minute, but the Biden administration is, you know, the mean reversion on, on regulatory vigor has been, Again, on one hand, totally to be expected. On the other hand, quite shocking in its in its ferocity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I can think of an entire industry, uh, crypto, that uh, sort of has been going through that exact uh, challenge. And it, it is a. I think you make a really good point that um, when you've been living in it, or when you have sort of a shorter time period that you've been sort of looking at this industry over, it does feel shocking, right? Like if you if you got into financial services during the Trump administration and you sort of were used to a particular regulatory regime and then you get the Biden administration, it would seem by contrast crazy, like your entire world has been flipped upside down. If you've been through a few other administrations, you'll know that's kind of just cyclically something that happens to your point. But I could definitely see that being like existentially feeling like your entire world has ended. Right. And I just, I like the question so much because by contrast, there's a lot of stuff that does change because technology is so dynamic. One of the very problematic things you can hear from investors or in investment committees when you when you bring investments is, you know what, we ch- we've tried this a million times. This just doesn't work. It doesn't work, right? Because the next level question is like, well, okay, why hasn't it worked in the past? We can we can stipulate that it hasn't worked in the past, but what? And, and if the answer has to do with you know the inevitable drying up of liquidity and economic cycles or the fact that regulation is a pendulum and will inevitably swing back. You know, again, I'm, I'm at least advancing the theory that those are durable conditions that are worth paying careful attention to. But AI has been a disaster for 30 years. <laughs> right. And now it's incredibly interesting what's happening in AI, transformational potentially. And so you know, you could have said no to a lot of AI investments over the last three to five years that you should have said yes to just based on some lizard brain memory of things having failed in the past. Right, right, right. No, yeah, separating those two is is so, so important. And actually um, brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask about, which is uh, obviously embedded finance, one of your um, sort of uh, favorite or most kind of core topics. As I mentioned before, you've written extensively on this. Bain has put out some just tremendous research on embedded finance as well, um, stuff that I uh, steal from shamelessly all the time because it's just really, really great uh, perspective on on this topic. And I, I think it's interesting in the lens of how we're talking about this, which is it's not a new concept. And you know we've been doing embedded finance, uh, maybe in slightly more analog ways for a very long time now. And so I think conceptually, it's something that the industry has been moving towards. And as I think you've pointed out in some of the articles that you've written on the topic, 
software and technology is really just an accelerant to a lot of these things. And so I was hoping to, to dig into a couple different aspects of embedded finance with you. First, since I have the man himself here, I, I figured I'd ask a question that um, seems to trip a lot of people up, given that embedded finance is such a popular concept and it's it's become sort of broad and maybe overly broad in some senses. How do you define embedded finance? The underlying theory is that over time, most, if not all, financial products and services will be purchased, underwritten, serviced, and experienced through sticky, data-rich software that consumers and business users are using all day long to run their workflows. You know, it's a long sentence, a lot of components, but it, you know, it's sort of carefully crafted to actually create some separation from the historical cross-sell motion that I think has sort of defined, or in my view, people have conflated with embedded finance. So yes, when you can, you're going through a process of buying a home and the realtor says, Hey, like we can actually hook you up with some home insurance. People will surely refer to that as embedded finance. And it's useful to have contextual offers and cross-selling Maybe not the way Wells Fargo did it in their peak, but like <laughs> uh, certainly not. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, cross selling is important in every business, and yeah, yeah. But that's not what I'm talking about. Just to be clear, like I'm talking about the transformational benefit of sticky data rich software as it relates to risk reduction and product transformation for financial services products specifically. So I I think you know not to be precious about it, but that, that was sort of like the reason behind all the writing is to try to parse these things in such a way that it's useful for practitioners to differentiate one type versus another type. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and so I, I love that. And um, I I struggle constantly with when defining these things, how can we be as sort of precise in our definition as possible? And I think, I mean, you make a really good point, right? That um the sticky data-rich software is the thing that fundamentally changes how we manage risk and how we sort of deliver these products. Can you sort of double-click into that for me? I mean, the what two two phrases that you said in that sentence that jumped out to me. One is obviously sticky data-rich software, so maybe you can give us a little bit more of a feel for that. And the second one is, and I thought this is a really great way of framing it, software that consumers or businesses use to run their workflows. So can you sort of just double click into each one of those just so we have a sense of exactly what you mean there? Yeah. So on the first, I think the kind of canonical example, almost too much because it's like runs the risk of people saying, well, geez, isn't that, maybe that's all it is, but is this sort of practice management software for retailers? And this is where we've seen the, the deepest penetration of embedded finance, over 50% of small and medium-sized retailers in the U.S. buy their payments from their software vendor. So here you have a context where you have a florist who is running her business entirely using the florist software, or you have a restaurant using Toast as a good example, terrific company. And, and so for that restaurant owner, it's the complete point of sale. It's the CRM system. It's the staffing and payroll it has all the components outside of core accounting and all of the data specific to the operations of that restaurant. So much so that 
you know, if you went to Toast and said, hey, generate a daily P&L for your customers, they could do it. And actually their customers probably couldn't do it themselves. So it's <laughs> such a differentiated set of data because merchant payments acceptance is actually a risk-bearing field of endeavor. It's not as risky as lending, it's not as risky as insurance, but they can very disruptively underwrite and, and say yes, basically, to merchants in a way that traditional underwriters, traditional merchant acquirers have a less lengthy than it used to be pre-square, but a, a process for underwriting strangers. But even more so, it's about that data-rich aspect. You know, for instance, the CRM at Toast is aware of payment instruments. And so, Alex, you go in and, you know, they don't need to ask you your name because your card is associated with your customer file. And so it's a transformationally better CRM when you're not having to, to burden the client with a bunch of data requests to learn what their favorite dishes are know what their favorite dishes are. Now, in my view, Toast hasn't nailed that part of it, but you can imagine that that sticky data-rich software that this retailer is using to run their business, it actually becomes leaps and bounds better than the ISO, you know, sales guy who walks in and, you know, puts the brick on the counter and says, here, you know, I'll save you four basis points. And it gets even more intense when you move into lending because it's just... It's to the point where Toast is the only party that should make a loan to that restaurant, I would submit. Like if a restaurant owner came to me as a branch banker at Bank of America and said, hey, I'd like to borrow money, my first question would be, what software do you use to run your business? And if the answer is Toast, you know, why? If they're not why you coming to me, I shouldn't. Like the adverse selection, you know, the Toast user who's not being offered a loan by toast who knows more about their business than they do. Yeah. It's just, dif it's dispositive. Like that is not a good risk. So that's the sticky data rich angle. And you can see it in, in other lanes, you know, accounts payable software is just the right place to offer B2B payments. You know, everything about the invoice, you match it to the purchase order. You've posted the payment to the ERP system. You know, the idea that the customer should then go to a bank to then make those payments when the bank knows nothing about the vendor, nothing about the invoice, doesn't have the remittance information. And so you can kind of go on and on in the B2B sense. It's quite easy to go all around the business and look at all the elements of software. Many of them create this unfair advantage in terms of convenience of workflow and understanding of data to make the payment or the loan or the insurance policy or sometimes the capital markets transaction much less risky and much more convenient. So on the so then on the B2C side, and maybe this takes me to the second part of my question, when I think about consumers, I, I guess I don't think about them in terms of having workflows. Now, of course, that's not true. They do, right? I'm thinking about my life now. And I, I have all kinds of software-based workflows that I go through every single day. Twitter is an addictively non-productive workflow that I have all the time, uh, which now Elon Musk is trying to jam payments and other things into. But can you sort of walk us through on the consumer side where you see some of those data-rich workflows potentially being impacted? And and I, I, I love that you sort of distinguish between different types of products. This is something that a lot of the Bain research that you guys have does as well. 
you know, as you said, lending is a little different than insurance, which is different than payments. So on the on the B2C side, where do you see some of the stickiest areas emerging? Well, I should start by saying, you know, 90 plus percent of my investing is B2B. Okay, fair, fair. That's kind of for, a re- for several reasons. One of which is I think the incumbent advantages in B2C financial services are actually much more dramatic. Yeah. Like if you look at all this first chapter of fintech, I think the incumbents won everything. We don't know how valuable companies like Chime and, and the other neobanks are, but they don't seem to have hurt JP Morgan all that much. You know what I mean? Like, it's, no, ba- based on the latest earnings, seemingly not so much. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's not to say, I mean, I think Chime is a fantastic multi billion dollar business, fantastic, but it's not disrupted retail banking. And certainly Lemonade has not disrupted personal lines, insurance, et cetera. So I think those incumbent advantages are very, very important and durable. So to me, I think the the actual thing to be scared of for them, the embedded finance opportunity resides in companies like Apple. Yeah. Where you think of all the quote unquote workflows that you have in your life that are intermediated by your phone, all the data that those things create about you that is very, very useful in underwriting and servicing any kind of personal loan or any kind of insurance. They know the phone knows where you are, phone knows how fast you're moving at any yeah. time. Like, right, right. There's a lot. So I think there's a lot of workflows that over the arc of time, as Apple gets more and more comfortable using that data, and it's not a coincidence that, you know, when they launched a credit card, they didn't do the underwriting. They launched buy now, pay later. Now they're yeah. doing the underwriting. I mean, this is yeah. a journey and those companies can think in multi-decade arcs. So I think to me, the non-media businesses in terms of big techs, that would be Amazon. Amazon is a big media business, but they don't depend on it the way Google and Facebook do. But Apple and Amazon are the scariest in terms of how much they know about you, how much of your lived experience are they intermediate and therefore what equivalent to workflows they can embed financial services products in. I think another example that's a little more accessible, we, one of the only B2C investments I made is a company called Acorns, which now with a recent acquisition is a very, very good sized company and doing quite well. And the thing I liked about it is at its core, it's a software company. They build a useful software tool for consumers to help them save money. It wasn't actually a new idea, of course. Bank of America had a, a roundup concept a long, long time ago. But yeah, the, the elegant software, you know, was enough of a distinctive advantage that they landed with this sticky data-rich software value proposition and were able to bundle banking services to the back of that and monetize that way. And so they, the business is a banking and brokerage business. The user experience is a sticky data-rich software experience. So I think this is how I encourage B2C founders to think about it is let's not build a digital version of what already exists, even if it's sort of like, hey, it's for a specific demographic that feels underserved. Like They won't be underserved for long. And people don't necessarily lead with identity in every case as they make financial services decisions. Lead with sicky data-rich software that will have you know high retention, qualities with your with your customers and then think about what financial services you can logically 
embed in a way that transforms the value of those financial services. Yeah, that, I think that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I I see this a lot in the B2C space where it's like, yeah, we built, you know, X and you're like, okay, but that already exists in banking. They're like, yeah, but it's, you know, it's better. It's like, I'm sure it's better. But yeah, I mean, there's this constant, I, I mean, I remember going back a while now, I constantly see surveys of like, you know, well, what would cause you to change your bank? And people always on those surveys answer, oh, you know, better pricing or more convenience or whatever. But like those surveys lie. They just do, right? I mean, I don't know. I don't know an easier way to put it. Like they just are not true and no one actually moves their bank accounts. And so to your point, building sticky data-rich software that solves some different problem that's not solved today that can be something that you can then bundle banking in. So I like the idea of embedded finance being, even in a B2C context, following a software play rather than a financial services play, I think is kind of what you're getting at. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, where we've seen bank switchers in B2C are or people who have been abused by the banking system, you know, who had these high fee propositions and were vulnerable to overdraft, et cetera. And, and those are the folks who've moved to the neobanks in general. A lot of people think banks are sort of evil and craven. I, I know a lot of bank executives. I've never met one who Me is. And, and yeah. Frank, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. I mean, people who go into retail banking actually have a real service ethic in my totally. experience. Yeah, um, totally. And even the banks that I was joking about, Wells Fargo, I mean, those people really care about their customers. And, and Absolutely. So the point is they had these fee structures because it's really hard to make money off of customers that don't have money. That's right. Like, how are you going to do it? I mean, the interchange is not that robust. And, and post-urban, it's, you know, so if you want to poach the customers that are not valuable, they're probably available to be poached because they're not getting great service and they're being overcharged. But how are you, having poached them, how are you going to then make money? It's like the media thing, right? I mean, like the sports fans paid for the cable bundle. That's what everyone was paying for. Those were the really valuable customers. You can peel away the customer that likes some show on the History Channel, but like by themselves, you can't really build a profitable streaming service around that segment of customers. Yes, the physics of financial services are, it's sadly that, the people with the resources are great customers and you can charge them moderate fees and the people with no resources are only great customers if you can rip them off. So going then to the embedded side and maybe uh, since you're more in B2B land, I'll um, sort of frame this as more of a B2B question. But I think another thing I'm really curious about the evolution of is, you know, I mean, we spend all of our time in fintech. Obviously, you spent a lot of time in fintech well before that was a term. I think we're all sort of inured to this idea that like, oh, embedded finance and anything can be a fintech product. You can bring financial services in on the back end of anything without necessarily maybe appreciating that the vast majority of people in the world and businesses out there don't spend any time at all thinking about fintech and might not be aware of embedded finance. Uh, I know that's shocking, but every time I go home at night, my wife is like, what'd you do? And I'm like, oh, you know, this thing came up. I talked to Matt Harris at Bain and she's like, yeah, I've never heard of him. Sorry. You know, so... Uh, apologies, but you're not uh, super famous within the broader Johnson household. Um, <laughs> I'm just getting started, buddy. I'm gonna I'm gonna penetrate the full Johnson household. I know. Over time. I know. Yeah. Just uh, well, I could give you some tips on content that might uh, better resonate. But um, <laughs> the uh, the thing I would be curious to get your take on is how 
the sort of broader universe, let's just say, of like companies out there that could do embedded finance, how do you reach those companies? And how do you convince them that like, hey, you know, you should offer financial services as a product of your bundle? Like, I, I, I'd be just really curious to understand how is that evolving, not on the fintech side, where obviously we have a lot of companies focused on enabling embedded finance, but on the brand side where it's like, hey, you have all of the ingredients necessary to bring that, all of that together with this killer financial services product, payments, lending, insurance, whatever it is that can sit in the center of what you're doing. Do you see that changing? Are there like people with a fintech job title working at non-fintech companies now? Like what, what do you see on that side of the fence? Yeah, it's, uh, it reminds me of, um, I don't know if you know, Anil Agarwal. Sure, um, yeah. He founded a company called TXVIA in ancient history that uh, Annie Lamont and I, and Trisha uh, from Oak and I invested in, uh, sold to Google, and then obviously went on to found Money 2020 and many other conferences with Jonathan Wiener. And um, I remember talking to him about Uber because sure. when Uber came out, everybody in financial services would have these like tropes you know, that they would launch at a conference or in a blog post saying like at the, at the core, Uber is really a payments company, mm. you know, cause they've made the payment invisible. And they, I remember you know, those. Yeah. That, uh, yeah. We were talking to Andy Hill about that. And he's like, you know what? Only FinTech nerds think Uber's a payments <laughs> company. <laughs> right. Everyone else like, is like, what are you talking about, man? <laughs> what are you talking about? Yeah. Like, so, I mean, the false centricity that we all, uh, the trap that we all fall into in thinking about financial services as, as at the center of everything, when really it, its job is to really facilitate commerce or to facilitate risk transfer. And so I try to be mindful of that constantly. And yet, as you note, my job is to actually convince people that it's a useful ingredient. It reminds me, one of the benefits, there are many problematic aspects of being old but <laughs> one of the benefits of being old is you end up with this wealth of analogies sure um, well you're you're I, I love analogies so go that's that's perfect okay i'm in a safe place here I this is this is an analogy um, safe place that is for sure <laughs> when i was um i started my first venture capital firm in 1997 the internet was not mainstream and i remember sort of convincing people in this role that I had back then that like, you should pay attention to the internet. And that clearly overshot. And then, and people started, you know, referring to themselves as internet companies and actually changing the name of their business to add.com to the end of it. It was a quite common thing that businesses did. In the right. 90s. And that obviously came full circle to where refer, you know, if you refer to yourself as an internet company or something.com, it's like archaic and goofy. And, <laughs> no, I mean, the internet is a very useful ingredient right. in many, many, maybe now all businesses. Terrific. Uh, so it went from being like people resist it to people over rotate and, you know, view it as, as the business in and of itself to now this sort of resolution of where it's a useful ingredient but it doesn't define who I am. And I, and I saw that same thing happen with the cloud in terms of software, you know, people were cloud companies and now they're just software companies. And of course, every software company these days has a, a SaaS modality to it. If not, you know, that's definitive and mobile was like the same yep. thing, you know, all these mobile companies like, no, mobility is an important ingredient, but you're not a mobile company. And so I think, you know, we're sort of on that arc with, with FinTech where 
at the peak of the mania in 2021, there were all these fintech companies, but it's just an ingredient, you know, in my mind, you know, like I'm sort of working my way out of a job in a sense to where like there's software companies and there's financial services and fintech is the mechanism for embedding financial services in software companies. It's an ingredient in a successful business model, but it is not a business in and of itself over time. And so, yes, I do spend a lot of time with software founders, helping them think about whether, because not in every case, you know, if you're running a, a CRM software company, I think you probably wait on embedded finance and maybe it never kicks in. But if you're in the practice management software, if you're really helping a company run its entire business, as you think about payments in, payments out, as you think about risk management and insurance, as you think about access to capital and the time shifting of payments that we call credit, definitely the software that controls all that data and the workflows in many cases of the decision makers around payments and lending and insurance, and by the way, hedging and all sorts of money flows and interest rate and currency and commodity flows, those workflows and those people and that data really does create a massive opportunity. And there are now infrastructure providers that make it easier, not trivially easier. And I do worry about that category of fintech infrastructure providers, but it's way easier than it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I love what you said because, I mean, I've don't quite remember the appending uh, a dot com to every company name and seen its valuation go up. Although certainly I, I know that that happened. I do recall from recent history adding blockchain to anything and that same sort of magic <laughs> effect happening, which uh, was bad. And I I'd be remiss. Uh, you referenced it earlier in the podcast, but I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you before letting you go the next one of these things that I'm pretty confident we're going to see, which is dot AI at the end of any company name. Um, so, I mean, I know uh, I've actually read a lot of the the stuff you guys have already put out around generative AI and what's happening right now, but would love to get your kind of quick take on where you see generative AI and large language models and some of the new stuff that's coming out right now impacting fintech and where, where some of the hotspots might be. I'm glad you've seen some of the stuff that we've written. My partner, Sarah Hankfist. She's great. Yeah, I, I've gotten to know her a little bit. She's awesome. As I've said to my partners on many occasions, I'm not a real momentum guy. You know, like you don't ask the guy who thought fintech was interesting in 2000 to be the guy to hop on the latest trend. You know, I tend to be like going where other people aren't focused. And I do observe many of our competitors dropping everything to focus their whole, you know, set of activities on generative AI. And I observe that, I think with a, a studied detachment, that may be exactly correct, but a sense memory of all the times that didn't work out in human history and the inevitable kind of overshoot that happens with, you know, these, these fragile mortals that we all are. So I, I bear that in mind. And yet, as I look at the facts and I look at the potential, I can't help but be incredibly excited myself, even with that detachment and that sense of history in mind. And I mean, it's just magic. And it's not too many times that you see magic happen so quickly. I mean, it's just three, four months we've gone from this still being a curiosity to being 
a really mainstream function in all sorts of industries from higher ed to the law to, of course, financial services. So, you know, I think my view is that it is largely about back office transformation versus an office transformation. So much of financial services still is human beings processing documents. Yeah, kind of a shocking amount, really. Like that's that's like it's it's some some cases it's like ninety percent of the job. It's crazy. Totally. And for something like seventy or eighty percent of the people, it's a hundred percent of the job. It's right. right. servicing and yeah. claims processing and you know, these you know, this sort of back office side of, of every financial service, which is about just process, processing documents of all type, needing to understand them to one degree or another in terms of the input, and then needing to output some other type of document. And that's really what this stuff was built for, you know, at a very, very high degree of reliability and even creativity, understanding these documents and creating output. So I think in the near term, three to five years, that's where the it's right to put the energy and that's where it's going to have the most dramatic impact in terms of cost reduction. You know, and, and by contrast, I don't think, you know, sort of the sell side analysts at Morgan Stanley should be using chat GPT to write their reports. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Like this front office stuff where it's kind of cool and glamorous and whatever, but, but really like th that's a tiny cost base. And I'd like to think humans have a role in, in you know, in business and invest forward. And so I think the, the back office implications are more dramatic than the front office implications. But, you know, for instance, here at Bank Capital Ventures, one of the things we do is, is source new investments and that involves research and outreach. And so now we have a, a large language model tool that, you know, when everyone starts their day, they have these pre-written emails that are oriented towards founders we've never met yet. And, and, and our folks, you know, go from those emails to craft them and, you know, but the voice in these emails and the substance of these emails and the companies that are being found using data science and, and generative AI, it, it, that's a front office function and it's a 10x improvement in terms of the efficiency of our teammates. So I think it's really exciting. I'm so glad post 2021, 2022, that we have something optimistic and future oriented, <laughs> like a little, you know, to talk about after yeah. kind of the shell shock of, of the market correction that we all lived through. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, and, um, this is a good place to end the podcast because I can tell my wife that she should listen to Matt Harris at Bain. And then at the end we get into generative AI and she's been playing with these chatbots. They actually, uh, they work remarkably well for writing uh, children's stories, like at the drop of a hat. And so if you have a, a five-year-old son who really likes Transformers and is dealing with whatever problem of the day a five-year-old deals with, uh, it can generate a hell of a story about Bumblebee going through something similar. So um, yeah, that blend of like back office drudgery, like, um, you know, dad, think of a, a story and tell me a story. I'm like, oh my God, I'm racking my brain trying to think of it. But also that like creative flair on top of it. It's pretty interesting stuff. To me, though, I will say, and this is again where the the old man in me comes out. I, <laughs> hey, you know, it's it's fine for us to glibly talk about the back office transformation, but then let's think about those hundreds of thousands of people. That's right, who had 
solid middle-class jobs who won't in the future. And I think we're not really ready economically for that displacement. And then in a much more micro scale, I remember we have six kids ranging from four to 14. I don't know how you do it, but that's a separate, we'll get into that in a different podcast. <laughs> I mean, I guess one of the ways is I've made up a lot of stories. Right. Um, sure. Sure. Yeah. And I don't wish I'd outsourced it. You know what I mean? Like I, I do think there's certain things we do here at BCV around investment memos as a good example, where you could definitely use AI to do it. Sure. And I think about it as similar to bedtime stories. You could you could definitely use AI to do it. And maybe I'm 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 just um got my finger in the dike here and it's not gonna work. No, I'm just gonna yeah. burst. But I do hope that the human ability to synthesize and create and connect through that creation and develop insight. I hope we don't we don't lose that, Alex. I'm totally with you. I uh I to put a fine point on it, I'm sure you probably feel the same way. I'm really hoping that my uh my kids do end up still writing a couple essays, right? Like I, I write, you know, five, 6,000 words a week on fintech stuff. And most of it's not very good, but like it helps me get smarter and helps me process the world and synthesize to your point. So I, I very much hope we don't lose that too. I know we're out of time, so I'm going to let you go. Matt, this has been so fun. I really appreciated it. Uh, this is a safe space, as we said, for analogies. So I, I hope you'll come back and give us some more in the future. I will, Alex. This is a real treat. It's great to meet you. I, I adore your writing. So so keep it up. Don't outsource. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Thank <laughs> you, sir. Um, thank you for your time. Cheers. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, why not pass it on to a friend you think would enjoy it too? And be sure to rate us five stars wherever you listen. This episode was brought to you by Nova Payment, a mission-critical financial and payments infrastructure provider. So you don't miss any more fintech stories, subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts.